Hello? Hello and welcome to the Disney Vault cast, the show that examines every single movie in the Disney Vault. This week, we're going across the galaxy to talk about 2002's Treasure Planet. A map. Wait, 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 wait. This is us, the planet Montressor. <gasps> That's the Magellanic Cloud. Ooh. The Coral Galaxy. <gasps> That's the Cygnus Cross. And that's the Carrion Abyss. Wait, what's this? What's this? It's Treasure Planet. No. That's Treasure Planet. I am your host, Aiden Simons, whose singing voice is provided by John Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, and who is here with me this week. Hi, I'm Frankie Godoy. I am the creator and host of the 8-Bits News Podcast on every podcast platform out there that you can think of. Getting that plug out right, right plug, away. Plug, 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 Love to see it. We are talking about Treasure Planet, a movie that is so interesting because it has such a long and labored history. It really is like the definition of a labor of love. And it's like a movie that is fondly remembered by a specific group of people, I feel like. Like but me. Everyone, <laughs> yeah. But like literally anyone outside of that specific group, like probably has no idea what this movie is. So this is be... an only 90s kids movie. I know. Listen, like the 2000s are a really interesting point in Disney history. Like I've only done one movie from the 2000s so far, and it's Pirates of the Caribbean, which is basically like a different thing altogether. Yeah. So why did you pick Treasure Planet to talk about? So as a child of that very specific generation called the 90s, Treasure Planet exists in this part of my mind that just makes it out to be the absolute pinnacle of cool. Whereas a fan of science fiction, of pirates, of boats, of just really anything nautical, just because I grew up in a place without any water, all of these things together in one huge adventure that just really combines everything I love is awesome. And also combining the little bit of early 2000s rock with Johnny Resnick. Mm -hmm. This movie is like fascinating because like, we're going to talk about it's like visual aesthetic and design later on because really needs to talk about it more. But like, it has like this timeless feel to it. It also is like such a 2000s movie. I mean, very Jim is basically a skater just with a sail like he is fully early 2000s skater and because normally 2000s I feel like got dated really quickly but it doesn't really hamper this film and this film is really one of the most unique designs I've seen in the movie because it really is just a pirate movie that just happens to be set in space like you could do all of this I mean obviously based on a previous work but you could do yeah, all it's of this. been almost 20 years and there hasn't been anything with quite the same aesthetic style since like yeah. there have been some films that gone close I. Uh, what was it? The 2013 John Carter mm-hmm. seems to have a somewhat similar feel with yeah. uh, swashbuckling and whatnot and some of the similar aesthetic within the sci-fi design where it's a lot more like steampunky and has a lot more like mechanical feel to it. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, there is nothing like sailboats in space. No. As we'll get into later, that was a very deliberate choice on the 
production team. But yeah, you know, I mean, you talked about you how you really like this movie. But what is your personal history with Treasure Planet? So I I was one of the children that saw Treasure Planet in theaters. One of the few people that saw Treasure Planet <laughs> in theaters, uh, just because it happened to open around the same time as another big film featuring a child. I think his name is Mr. Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, having seen that in theaters, there's and being a child or a child that frequently went to the theaters, seeing uh, Treasure Planet afterward, just because it's a big Disney film and mm-hmm. was just so cool. <laughs> Uh, getting to hear like the soundtrack and just the sound design of everything over these giant speakers that like just towered around me really added to the feel of how big of an adventure it is that doubled down from the original source work and just put that same adventure in space. I um to give away my history like I did not see this movie in theaters I didn't see it for a while actually even though like I was around the age to like see this movie I think I was like six when this movie came out um but I did not see it in theaters I think and I probably wouldn't have not appreciated it as much in theaters but like I would have loved to see it on an IMAX screen like it would have been probably like a visual treat and Disney's never going to release this movie in theaters again so I'll never get that opportunity but Disney barely talks about this film anyway (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Disney only really talks about, like, one movie from the 2000s. Oh, I guess two, because Princess and the Frog. But, like, outside of Lilo and Stitch, like, they don't acknowledge their 2000s movies, probably because, like, none of them really did well, performed well. But there's a class of Disney movie that, like, Disney just, like, does not recognize often, but has a very passionate group of fans, probably because Disney doesn't recognize it. It's, like, you know, the Atlantis, Treasure Planet, the Hercules um, brother bear to an extent and like I said it's a very specific generation of people who adore that movie um I remember seeing trailers for it on Disney Channel because of course I was sick so I was watching Disney Channel a lot so the trailers were, were what it. sold me initially the hardest on the film because mm-hmm. the first trailer for the movie is just the the original solar sailing uh, or solar surfing sequence that comes at like the top of the movie. Okay. It's just that. Okay. That is the original trailer. Just complete silence with the soundtrack and this dude just looking the coolest. <laughs> okay. I honestly don't remember that, but Disney does that a lot with their movies. I mean, the first trailer for The Lion King, I think, was just literally the Circle of Life sequence. And more recently, Frozen 2, its first trailer was literally just a scene of Elsa freezing the waves so they really like to do that like they like to sell the movie by showing their movie off like just showing a full uninterrupted scene of their movie which is honestly it is an effective way to sell a movie like why not give them a little taste of what you're gonna see that's not just like cut up with because I I remember seeing trailers with like the 2000s pop rock music and all the action scenes but that's really not what this movie is but of course marketing is almost never truthful in selling what a movie is On the clearest of nights, when the winds of the ethereum were calm and peaceful. The great merchant ships with their cargoes of Arcturian solar crystals felt safe and secure. Little did they suspect that they were pursued by... Pirates. 
And the most feared of all these pirates was the notorious Captain Nathaniel Flint. So yeah, now that we like talk about our histories, time to get into like the history itself with Treasure Planet. And there is a lot here, but mostly because the very idea of Treasure Planet goes all the way back to the 80s, 1985 specifically. Well, actually, even before that, because this is a movie that is based off a book, Treasure Island, which released in 1883 by Robert Louis Stevenson. And almost 100 years. God, yeah. Yeah, it's 100 years until they developed it. Um, I don't know if it's like a thing. I mean, children read nowadays, probably at least somewhat because it is in the public domain, obviously, but definitely one of the most like influential children's books of all time. And oh, absolutely. Of, like, even if you've never read it, like you've seen its influences because it did create the idea of what a modern pirate is, like with the peg leg and like the long beard and the parrot on the shoulder that all came from. Where X marks the spot. Yeah. And it's not only one of the most famous children's books, it's also one of the most frequently adapted works of fiction. There's been over 50 adaptations, and three of them have been from Disney. So including this one, there have been two other ones. Um, Not to go too deep into them, because there are their own films, and every Disney movie in the vault is game, so I don't want to give away anything. But the first was 1950, was actually Walt Disney Productions' first live-action feature film produced by Walt Disney himself, and actually the first adaptation of Treasure Island to be in full color. And then we got Muppet Treasure Island in the 1996, which obviously the Muppets, much more comedic take on the subject matter, and notably starred Tim Curry as Long John Silver. Tim Curry, who has not been in a Disney animated film, I believe, surprisingly isn't, The concept of Treasure Planet goes all the way back to the 80s. Basically, this movie is the passion project of legendary directors Ron Clements and John Musker. When this idea was first pitched, they're wrapping up The Great Mouse Detective, um, and it was first pitched at the infamous Gong Show, which we talked about in our Little Mermaid episode. Basically, it was just a rapid fire pitching of ideas to studio head Jeffrey Katzenberg, basically different animators going, oh, let's make this. And then Katzenberg was just like, Yes, no. And this was the um, meeting where The Little Mermaid was first pitched. Ironically, both films were rejected at the time, though Little Mermaid eventually, very shortly after, obviously, as we all know, got accepted and became the savior of Disney animation. But Treasure Planet was rejected as well, and mostly because Michael Eisner, who came from Paramount, was aware that Paramount was allegedly developing a Star Trek film that also adapted the Treasure Island story, obviously. They didn't come to pass, but this is a little foreshadowing of the long card road Treasure Planet would face to get to the screen. Obviously, Clement and Musker moved on to The Little Mermaid, uh, which, as we said, was a massive success, both critically and commercially. And so they were like, okay, we made this incredibly received movie. Uh, Can we make Treasure Planet? And then Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, no, you cannot. So instead, the two wanted to direct Aladdin, again, an even bigger success commercially for the studio. Another big swashbuckling adventure, too. Yeah, honestly, like, it very much is an adventure film, obviously, with much more of the fairy tale leaning and romance leaning than Treasure Planet. And going to their next film, they definitely like making the adventure film. And then once Aladdin released, they're like, now can we make Treasure Planet? And then Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, no. Basically, he didn't want this movie at all. And he was like, who wants to see Treasure Island in space? And 
unfortunately, I hate to give him props. Apparently, not a lot of people. I so did. you did, but he may have had a point there. He he may have. I don't want to give him too much positive feedback, but he may have had a point there. Clearly, Clements and Musker they really, really wanted to make this movie. So they went to Roy E. Disney, who was already getting sick of Katzenberg and Michael Eisner and their shenanigans and would eventually help orchestrate the exit of Michael Eisner from the company. He was like, wait, this idea is great. Why aren't you making it? So he, he went up to the top and like, let them make this movie. And Clements and Musker were at the end of their contract with Disney as they made some of the most well-received and successful animated movies of the 90s and there still be, are yeah like there are still some of disney's most iconic films and like basically yeah these guys are like probably the most famous directors to come out of disney animation side and obviously when you're successful other studios other competitors are going to want to like pick you up they were being courted by other companies most notably dreamworks who was founded by ex-studio head jeffrey katzenberg they were like hey we want to make this we, our contract is up. We have all the power. So they renegotiated their contracts that said they, they will make Treasure Planet, but they would only make it once they finish Hercules. Basically, it's so funny because like all these movies that are so like beloved, I mean, Hercules, maybe not as much so, but Clemson Musker did not want to make they're basically like forced to make and they were handed over and they're like we want to make this treasure island movie in space that's what we want to make and everyone was like no make these instead and like they tried to be some of the studio's most beloved films once that released in 1997 they were finally after a solid decade of trying they started production on treasure planet um probably a big thing that helped like as I said Katzenberg did leave Disney and he did found DreamWorks so that probably was a big help because he was a roadblock. And as we'll touch on later, this was ultimately a very faithful adaptation of the story besides like outside the subject matter and some other smaller things. And aliens. Yeah, aliens. Exactly. And they did want to make a sci-fi movie, but usually when you think of sci-fi, you think of like cold, metal, futuristic, neon, and dystopia too. And like, that's not what they wanted to make. They wanted one something that felt like warm and was distinct from these cold worlds that we associate with sci-fi. And so they want to make a world that was like warm and inviting. And that even goes into its color scheme, which is it uses a lot of warm tones and not a lot of cool tones in it. And something I do find interesting is that this film does not really get into the nitty gritty of sci-fi at all. Where like the other films in space, like they focus on like the science of it all. And this one just doesn't it just is in a sci-fi world and well, this one's not in space it's in the ethereum that was a very deliberate choice on the team of the production team because they wanted a film that ultimately was fun and focused on the action and they very quickly realized that like if these characters were in space suits the whole movie because obviously they're in space they're like this is not going to work we're not going to get what we want so they did come up with the concept of the ethereum which you know to its basic terms is just a breathable space that also has wind and like yeah the ethereum is not a big part of this movie at all it's just literally the analog for the ocean like the ethereum just is a means to an end which i think is probably honestly one of the most brilliant decisions of this movie because that immediately takes out like all of like the nitpicky questions about this side how this sci-fi world operates it's just like oh yeah it's it's just atmosphere that you can breathe in see and i want to circle back to where in the Ethereum, you said that there was wind. 
mm-hmm. there actually win? Just because in in my head canon, or maybe it's just because I'm stuck to remembering what was coming from or what child me remembered from the film. Uh, even though I literally just watched it last night. <laughs> in my head canon, because the unless this is actually what happens in the film, because it looks like on all the ships and all the different vehicles that they have solar sails attached to them, along with the like thrusters and whatnot on the ships. So I thought, or at least in my head, it works where it's, those are genuine solar sails, just sailing based off of solar radiation and different radiation from different stars. So like in the supernova sequence, they escape from the blast, not because of it being of the explosive pressure of a star collapsing in on itself, but because of literally like radiation from the explosion that was propelling them. So, okay, so I'm on the Treasure Planet wiki, and it basically it's just like, it's basically current. So it's kind of, it's not really wind, but like it's analogous to wind because of the sails. But yeah, it's like, it's just currents that form. And like, I don't think they go too deep into the sci-fi because again, this very much isn't a movie that's focused on all that. Okay. There are nights when the winds of the Ethereum so inviting in their promise of flight freedom make one's spirit soar. So very much like a more like, you know, ethereal take on it. But yeah, so my understanding was that it's like currents. So like, you know, basically wind, and that's why they have sails is to take advantage of that. But again, this is like, I think, yeah, I think it's like one of those things that's like can be up to interpretation because the film isn't really interested in exploring that. It could be like a million things like that because there's no real definitive answer. Same with how their artificial gravity works on the ship. If it's mm-hmm. literally just like a a pole thing that uh like a lever or a pole that brings people into the ship if it is a pole from off of the ship then how does arrow fall off of the ship because will it gravity catch him how are you able to pour things off the side of the ship does it go straight down what are the bounds of the artificial gravity (laughs) yeah no and i honestly do think that them choosing not to focus on the side fiction elements is probably one of the best decisions this film makes because it could very easily get bogged down by all these questions and all that but ultimately they just want to make a fun adventure film they just want to make a pirate movie in space like they're not concerned with all this technical details and I do think it's a stronger film for that because and one this is a children's movie like there's a certain line where like this stuff's going to go right over their heads and so absolutely I think just letting this just be this is basically just open air. It's not exactly, but that's basically what it is. And I think just having, just like not focusing on the nitty gritty of it all probably ultimately is one of the strongest elements of this film and was for the film's benefit overall. Because they wanted to make a more action focused film, they were very inspired by filmmakers like Steven Spielberg and James Cameron and wanted to make a grand epic movie. And that also had to do with the camera. They wanted to make a movie that had dynamic camera movements that could pan across and like go across the environments which must have been a pain for the animators uh-huh and as we'll get to ballooned this film's budget to unfathomable numbers one of the most notable things about treasure planet is the fact that it uses the deep canvas system very heavily um the deep canvas system just kind of to touch upon it very quickly is was first used in Tarzan to create the scenes where he's surfing on the vines and you know if you recall those scenes they're very dynamic and like 
feel like a 3D set, feel like a physical set. And cool. Oh yeah, the scene from the movie. Like that is the like signature of that movie. Um, to put things down to its simplest terms, Deep Canvas is just basically a system that allows animators to make CGI backgrounds that still have the look of 2D animation. In Tarzan, it's used in a very specific context and a specific circumstance. But for Treasure Planet, basically the whole movie uses it, um, which ultimately is why it became so expensive. The deep canvas technology was used to create what was called virtual sets, which is basically a 360 degree set that had the characters placed in them after the fact. And because of this, they could place the camera anywhere they wanted in the set and in the scene. And then they were able to manipulate the camera throughout the set to kind of create these sweeping dynamic camera movements and kind of mimic the style of a live action film, like on a dolly or something like that. So this film, obviously with the deep canvas, used a lot of CGI in it, but the CGI was used in other parts of the film too. Most notably John Silver, who was actually an interesting hybrid of 2D and CGI animation. All of John Silver's organic body parts are very much 2D animated, traditionally animated, but all of his cybernetic parts are CG. And so they're kind of like a weird, interesting mixture of this old style and new style. And something fun I learned was that they tested this system out by placing a cybernetic arm on Captain Hook, which I just find, I find funny. I would like to see that footage. Maybe it's out there on like a DVD or something. Find the original animation cell. Yes. I I don't think this used cells, unfortunately. Oh. Little Mermaid was the last film by the feature animation team that used cells, but the last Disney film that used cells was the DuckTales movie. Unfortunately, there is no way to get a physical cell of Treasure Planet. Oh. It's pretty obvious this film used a lot of new or at least ambitious technology or used established technology in a new way, which can create a costly film, which again, we'll, we'll get back to in a bit. Going back to Deep Canvas before we move any further. Yeah. Did you know this, the CG when you were younger? Did not. Probably because like, I mean, obviously I knew the difference between CG and 2D. You can just tell, but I don't think I recognized the difference that much. Like I didn't internalize it that much. And so I like really didn't. And even now, like it's still a very subtle effect. And like yeah, the CG elements really blend in very nicely to the entire film. Like the entirety of the ship itself, that's all made in deep canvas. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have the whole set there. And there's one shot early on when it's in the, I think it's in the first conversation with Silver, mm -hmm. uh, between Jim and Silver, where they're in the galley and he's talking to him about, uh, it's like, hey, there's a, there was a guy that told me to beware the cyborg. Mm -hmm. And as they're talking, there's this really just long, steady shot that goes all the way around the galley, uh, starting from like one side and it tracks uh, Jim and Silver the entire time as they're having this conversation all the way around. And I was like, wow, how did they draw that? When I <laughs> But the only time when the CG really stood out for me, even now watching it just yesterday, the one thing that really stood out to me in the shot was in the chase sequence when they return to the ship to get the map later okay. in the film, where there's the chase cam that's following uh, Jim and Morph through the lower decks of the ship. And it it's everything passes by super quick. 
all the wood, the the piping and whatnot. And so it looks like they've really just sort of threw together colors on all the different CG elements and called it good because like, oh, this is a chase cam. The yeah. camera's all shaky. You're not going to see any of this. But if you do pause and just look at it, it kind of just looks like they're running through like alpha environment. Well, I'm going to have to screen cap that and post it on the Twitter when this episode is live. Yeah, this film, it's, I mean, that's why the film became so expensive, but it's such a, it's such an innovative way to make a 2D traditionally animated film because it uses CG, like a lot of films from the 90s use CG in very noticeable ways. Like, I mean, one that comes to mind right away is the Hydra in Hercules, which stands out. But this film, it doesn't use CG for any specific, I mean, it does use CG for specific things like the space whales, but it really uses CG to like enhance the overall film and not to create specific things. Like obviously, yeah, like I said, the space whales and then John Silver, the CG is more used as like an enhancement of the film to make it more epic and dynamic and not just, oh, we have CGI. Let's, let's throw it at this one thing. It's very, they very much, it was an intentional use of CGI in this film. As we touched upon like a little bit ago, this film has a very unique and distinct aesthetic. It's very much a steampunk-y, pirate-y look that's just mixed with sci-fi. And that look was created very deliberately used by what the production team called the 70-30 rule, in which when it comes to the film's look and design, only 30% of what's in the film would be sci-fi, while the other 70% is traditional and Victorian. So for example, all the characters dress in traditional Victorian looks, but they are aliens and they use very futuristic technology. And that's why we have ships that have both plasma cannons and sails. And it kind of creates like a steampunk-y look, that's not, but that's also not like that steampunk you think of when you go on like Tumblr or like Reddit and all that. It's a very distinct look, both for Disney, because I mean, Disney doesn't really traffic in sci-fi a whole lot either, but it's very much just stands out from other films too of like other, because I mean, Pirates in Space are not an original concept, but this, this is very much the pirate aesthetic in space, which I feel like is something we don't get that often. And that same 70-30 design aspect also followed through into the music, mm -hmm. where while the, the score itself is, tradition, is mostly just a traditional score using uh, an orchestral, or an orchestra, excuse yeah. me, just throughout the whole thing, there's also like John Resnick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Very guitars so. and drum sets. Uh, and like the occasional synth that comes in uh, yeah. to highlight certain things. That 70 30 hmm. design really came into everything with the film. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, this film, the soundtrack, yeah, it is very orchestral, but it's also very Celtic too, which is probably the farthest you can get from when you think of a sci fi film. But it works because because of that 73 rule, like it does not feel out of place when you hear just that Celtic music just come out of nowhere, like it very much fits in this sci-fi world. And, and I think if it was the other way around, like 70% sci-fi and 30% Victorian, it would not work because there's nothing unique about that because then it's, at that point, it's just a sci-fi world. So I think having it be primarily traditional and Victorian, it that goes back to the source material, but 
like I said, the filmmakers made very deliberate decisions. And maybe that's because they had so long to marinate on this concept to kind of refine it before it finally went into production. But basically, like, and yeah, the team had made very deliberate decisions when it came to this movie. And you can tell that they thought hard about what they wanted this film to be. You touched on the music. The music is done by James Newton Howard, who is a nine-time Oscar nominee, who scored films like My Best Friend's Wedding, The Fugitive, and has a long history with Disney. Um, prior to this, he came off the films Dinosaur and Atlantis, and even most, more recently, just scored Raya and the Last Dragon. So he's still in the Disney bubble. Um, oh, the score for Raya is so good. <laughs> it really is good. I, I need to watch it again. It's been, I haven't watched, I've only watched it once and I paid 30 bucks for it. Um, Your point about the 73 when it comes to music is so like, I mean, honestly, yeah, spot on because yeah, it should feel jarring and it, it, and it is jarring to have just this rock just play out of nowhere especially I think I feel like it's more drawing at the end but that you know it's the end of the animated movie you get what you get with that but it somehow it, isn't it's a jarring. pretty gentle transition towards the end though because yeah. it it hangs on that uh like guitar strumming hook and then uh it just comes in as like guitar it's like okay guitar I can see where this is going but then the drum hits yeah and then it's all it just goes everywhere from there yeah I think a really smart thing they did was they tied the song to establish the relationship between Jim and John. Like it's, it is a montage sequence, but it's a montage that's both focused on Jim's past, but also contrasting it with the growing relationship between him and John. And therefore this song, this John Resnick rock song suddenly has this strong emotional attachment to the rest of the film. And I think Again, going back to the how the team was very deliberate with their choices, that was a very deliberate choice they made with putting this song in this sequence that focused on the development of the relationship between the two, which is ultimately at the core of this movie. And also, John Resnick has like the quintessential early 2000s hits. Mm -hmm. When you think of like early 2000s rock, it is John Resnick and who else? Like Chad Kroger, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's You Think the Virus. Maybe like, Creed. Oh God, Creed. But then again, all they're three like, of those guys all kind of sound the same. Yeah, they very much come from the same like avenue of rock music. That 2000s like style of rock has a very specific sound to it. And I don't never know how to describe it, but it has a very specific, like that soft rock from the 2000s. It has a specific sound to it. Again, going back to that 70-30 rule, this even goes down to the sound design itself. The team wanted to use a lot of physical items when it came to creating the actual sound of the film. So when it came to creating the sounds of John Silver and his cybernetics, the team went to hobby shops and bought things like old wind-up toys to avoid making him sound too sci-fi. So again, this really is just basically a surface level sci-fi film. Like it is a sci-fi film in visuals only. And again, this is the fact that it's a book from the 1800s, but this film does not need to be a sci-fi movie where other sci-fi movies that are, you know, say like Alien or Blade Runner very much have to be sci-fi. And this one just is a movie that just happens to be sci-fi. And I think that is a big reason why this film continues to be popular is because it's such a unique aesthetic. I know the steampunk aesthetic is popular in certain circles, but this is such a unique look and feel for a film, let alone a Disney movie. Steampunk and I, also doesn't usually take place in space. 
No. The term of steampunk is very much like this is Victorian London that just has steam technology. But this, I mean, obviously steam technology isn't even a thing in this. I mean, it might be, but... I don't think they ever explain how things are powered either. No. And I think that just goes back to them not wanting to, like, deal with it. Like, yeah. I love world building, and I mean, this does do pretty good world building, but I'm also a fan of movies that are just like, this is the world, this is it, like, just move on. Like, because I really feel like, especially with, like, alternate worlds and alternate timelines and all, all that, it's so easy to get bogged down in all that, and I think this, it just makes for a more streamlined film to just, you know... And they do a good job of showing this world. Like, I think that opening scene is a perfect way to show this world because you immediately see a pirate ship floating in space and you see that's being read on like a hologram book by this kid in a Victorian nightgown. And that intro shot feels very Star Wars as well. Mm -hmm. Where that, or having the camera sit as the ship flies over is almost like a direct homage to that shot of the Star Destroyer. Yeah. I remember I didn't um I didn't go I didn't put it in because I couldn't really fit it in but I remember the team said like there was going to be an alternate opening scene where I think it was going to be a first person shot a first person view of Jim kind of retelling the story but I feel like this is such a such a strong and efficient way of establishing a place a sense of place because it does all the heavy lifting without without doing any heavy lifting it very much is show don't tell and I think it's a perfect way to start this film because it shows that this is a traditional Victorian world that's in space and again I think because this film is so ambitious in terms of its design and aesthetics and I think that is a big part of reason why it kind of has persisted because it does ironically have a timeless feel to it even though it's set both in the past and in the future that kind of makes it timeless which I mean that's why Disney films are so popular overall because they are timeless and I think I I mean yeah I just love this world and I forgot how much I loved the design and aesthetic of this film before I watched it again but also just cool Mm -hmm. everything exudes like the like safest warmest amount of cool yeah it's and like it's, the it would be like the cool like skateboarding uncle where mm-hmm. he's like in his like late 30s but he still skateboards yeah. or he has like a like a cool motorbike but he still comes over and is like hey kid how are you doing in school you want me to help you out with school i can help you do your homework i'll read your essay and then he'll like sit down and like cook you dinner or something <laughs> Yeah, like this film is cool without being edgy, which is, I feel like, especially for 2000s animation, like it was a trap a lot of animated movies fell into in the 2000s, but it's not edgy, which I mean, there's a, there's very much a world where this film could be. Jim Hawkins is the biggest edgelord though. Yeah, but he still has that Disney heart to him, which I mean, this was made in production while Shrek was in production, so it didn't have to, it didn't have the aftershocks of that, but There is a world where this film just has none of the heart and all of the edge. And I feel like we're dangerously close to it. And I think it's all the better that it's not. And so speaking of Jim Hawkins, um, just some members of the cast and a surprisingly like pretty all-star cast headlined by Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jim Hawkins, who at this point his career is a rising child star because again, this is 2002 and time is meaningless. Time is a flat circle, as some might say. 
It really is. I don't even know if we mentioned it. Next year is going to be 20 years since this movie came out. Actually, and like, interestingly, the character of Jim himself is one of the biggest changes made from the source material. Um, in the original, Jim is a young boy who just gets caught up in this swashbuckling adventure. But he's aged up in the Disney adaptation, which kind of a controversial decision as we'll get to, but I think probably was for the best. And he's also a bad boy in this movie, which is kind of unlike the traditional Disney protagonist. I mean, obviously you get characters like Aladdin, who was a thief, but he has a heart of gold and he is like selfless in some regards, but we don't really get a character from Disney who like just is a troublemaker and who, I mean, all Disney characters have emotional baggage, but it's a very unique take on the Disney protagonist. And, And I do feel like aging him up probably was the right choice because I feel like it's harder to connect with the movie when it's like a young kid who probably can't even process what's going on he has a similar feel as a character to like Lilo almost okay because yeah both of them they are like the Disney protagonists where like you want to get behind them and support them and whatnot but they aren't like ultra competent but they do have like these sparks of knowledge and mm-hmm. skill that they have where like Jim clearly he can make a a solar board using an old plasma cannon and just some scrap and probably the board that he uses at the start of the film that was been through some stuff clearly yeah, yeah. <laughs> just him like practicing and it's worn out like an old skate deck and he's put some work into that and it still works And he can do all of these cool moves and stuff, but he's just not quite good enough to, like, escape the police. No, yeah. Or just not quite good enough for for his father to stick around. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just these other little things that just bring him back down. Be like, oh, yeah, like, he can do things, but he's not quite as great as some of these other characters like other disney characters are built out to be like ultra competent Mm -hmm. to where they can like do anything do everything and some of them are just like put in these like bad situations like cinderella where she is ultra competent but she is instead put in like these really downtrodden situations yeah uh, from her living situation Mm -hmm. Um, but in the end she can do anything and this is where like the promise of him having just enough ability to be able to be completed by the doctor and putting together a team of capable individuals to be able to go on this journey to treasure planet which in the end kind of sets up a theme to where like you can do things by yourself but it's better if you go together and being able to open up and like work with other people on top of the main themes of like fatherhood and just the connection with a family to really tie that into where you don't have to go alone for things. I mean, and like Lilo, um, obviously, yeah, both Lilo and Jim aren't alone in that they lost their parents. I mean, Jim's dad didn't die, but like he left and never heard from. So basically almost the same thing, but he's probably dead though. Yeah. And like, but we outside of like the Lion King and kind of frozen, we don't really touch on like the grief of these characters and that but with Lilo and Jim you do focus on the grief of the characters they kind of express it in different ways I mean actually even kind of the same way they both act out and get into trouble and cause mischief and cause like 
hell for their parents slash guardians. And so I actually didn't, yeah, they really are similar. It's just the fact that, yeah, one is a delinquent teenage boy. Another one is a six-year-old girl who just needs a friend. I mean, they both need a friend, but the decision to age him up, while I think works for the movie, was a controversial for Terry Rossio, who helped develop the story, who we mentioned in our Pirates of the Caribbean episode. And he thought that aging Jim up was a mistake. And he said it ruined the drama of the story because, I mean, he has a good point that like Treasure Island is very much a boy's adventure. It's about this young boy on this swashbuckling adventure. But again, I don't know if the movie would have connected as much if it was just a little boy doing it. Because like, I mean, no I think you get more from having Jim being like a teenager because mm-hmm. he's a, like being in that teenage, uh, a lot of teenage stories really focus around like self-identity and like discovering yeah. yourself. So especially in that age, Jim is having that trouble being able to find himself without having a older male figure to mm-hmm. guide him to that position. Obviously, him losing his dad would have an impact him in no matter what. But like, if you're a certain age, you just don't know how to process it. And the relationship between him and John is such a foundational part of the movie. I don't know if that would have stuck around if he was a young kid, but it definitely would not have the ultimate impact it did if Jim were just a little kid and he was bonding. Like, it probably would. But I think the fact that he is old enough to like recognize that his dad left and is not coming back and he has this, this new father figure he's able to trust that and like it's very hard to go through a character arc when you're a child because mm-hmm. you don't have a defined personality I mean like I said Lilo does go through a character arc but um it's very hard to go through development when you are a child who hasn't even started development at all so I can see where he's coming from but I do think it was the right call to age him up for this story you do see that slightly younger Jim in mm-hmm. towards the end of the flashback montage yeah uh when our first taste of johnny resnick mm-hmm. uh where it looks like he's about like 11 or 12 in that yeah shot because you see him like young young at like the start of the yeah movie. yeah uh but the point where he is uh running after his dad he looks to be about like 12 12 or 13 might have worked uh because i think that was uh what the age of uh the character was in like the original yeah treasure island something like that, that age. uh it's about the same age as harry potter well you know mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but ultimately in the film how old is he like 16 or 17 my guess is yeah between 16 and 18 yeah like because like kid i think he's probably more like 16 or 17 because otherwise, like, if he was slightly older, he might have also gone the same way as just hopping on the ship and leaving his mom. Yeah, and if he were a kid, and if they wanted to have the story of his dad leaving, they would literally have to be, like, literally just happened, or else, which at which point you don't have time to process it, or it would have happened when he was, like, a toddler, and he wouldn't know any different. Yeah. So I think for the emotional core of this story, which is the relationship between him and Jim to work, he would have to be aged up. And speaking of John, John Silver is voiced by Brian Murray and obviously based off the character of Long John Silver, who, as we mentioned, is the template for the modern image of the pirate we have now with the peg leg and all that. And clearly the peg leg is 
replaced with his cybernetic enhancements, which I think is a, a cool twist. Like it's one of those things that like, duh, it's a sci-fi treasure planet. Of course, he would be a robot instead of having a wood leg, which is like basically the robot of the pirate world. And most animated films do have their cast record their parts separately just for logistic and budgetary reasons. But Gordon Levitt really wanted to record with Marie together due to the character's relationship between the two and the nature of their dynamic. And I do think it works because like so much of the film hinges on the two of them. And if you're recording separately, yes, you can create this chemistry, but it's so much easier to create it when you are in person and next to the person. So you can actually see the person you're talking to. We also have Emma Thompson as Amelia Smollett, who is a gender swapped version of Alexander Smollett from the original book, which the original book is very male heavy. I mean, obviously it's from the 1800s. That's the problem. It makes sense, but they decide to turn the captain into a woman, which I mean, I think is a good choice. And they wrote the part specifically for Thompson and thankfully for them, she said yes. And she was actually pregnant while recording this film, which is her first action-oriented role. So that's just kind of a fun fact that I learned. With Amelia Smollett, uh, she's one of like the earlier like animated female badasses. Because mm-hmm. uh, Disney was in a phase in like the late 90s, early 2000s, where they seemed to be moving away from those traditional princess roles. Yeah. So like in Hercules, you get Meg, mm-hmm. who is just another just badass woman and they immediately play with like the trope of like the damsel in distress and whatnot and she just kind of talks her way out of it and then like going on you get uh like nani and lilo and stitch you get i'm blanking on her name right now in atlantis oh yeah there's Uh, a few of there's multiple just badass women in atlantis but amelia smollett uh it was definitely just like the like badass captain of this ship and it's like oh hell yeah she can do anything uh perhaps like if anyone was interested at the time all of the uh, the internet infrastructure may have been may have made it more difficult to find certain things regarding these topics uh in the era then uh they could have discovered some things that their preferences uh and their preferences for uh <laughs> basically you're saying this movie awakened furries (laughs) like this film was the genesis of a generation of furries this could have been the genesis of a generation of furries absolutely yes and i probably am going to cut this out because my parents listen to the show (laughs) yeah and it is cool no it is cool how just the captain of this ship just is a woman and like it's just not nothing's thought about it yeah and honestly kind of going off that like as much as like bad faith say like how Disney is woke now and I mean I do think they've created much more positive representation in the current decade and past decade but the 2000s they really were like diversifying like who started in their films like you said Atlantis had a bunch of people of different genders and if I remember correctly like different ethnicities Mm -hmm. and they were doing films like Brother Bear and Emperor's New Groove that focused on non-white protagonists which were only starting to become a thing in the 90s. And and with Emperor's New Groove focusing on like the peak of South America. Yeah. Like culturally back in, uh, well, historically. And I didn't actually like write this thing because I, I found it too late and like I forgot to mention it. But like there were like rough, some um, speculation that um, 
Jim was, I think, was envisioned as an Afro-Latino character, which kind of fits in because really none of the main characters from those 2000s films, except Atlantis, were really white. And even Atlantis, like I said, um, had a multi-ethnic cast. So, I mean, I, I don't know what happened there, but definitely. And uh, I, think, I think the trope of fatherly abandonment, specifically with yeah. like Afro characters, could have been interpreted uh, mm-hmm. in a certain way. So maybe that's why they decided to pass on it. Yeah, I do get that. Yeah. But yeah, I think I feel like if this movie were made today and it was shown that like the captain was gender flipped, they would have created like an outrage, Mm -hmm. I feel like, which and it's kind of surprising that that there isn't that, but probably because no one talks about this movie. Yeah, unfortunately. I know. But yeah, would it be a change that would be like um, just criticized constantly by a certain subset of people. Also in the cast is David Hyde Pierce as Delbert Doppler, who actually is a composite character made for the film. So he's a combination of the characters of Dr. Livesey and Squire Trelawney. I should have I should have looked at pronounced those before. He serves a function as both characters in the story. And obviously he's known for his role in Frasier, but he was given the script while he was recording a Bugs Life where he voiced the Slim, the stick bug. And Going off that, he was he was the only character in the lead cast with prior voice acting experience, which was actually again a deliberate choice. Um, they wanted actors to speak naturally, so they wanted um, actors who really didn't have experience with voice recording to record this film. And finally, our last cast member is the bane of my existence, not mm-hmm. not the actor, the character, Martin Short as Ben, who is based off the character Ben Gunn, who was abandoned on Treasure Island and had gone crazy and originally the team had considered putting vocal effects over short's voice but thought it affected the performance too much and said oh no the jokes aren't funny anymore which they never were funny he lost Um, his mind yeah um i made a note about this just because i had to get it online i like i made it a talking point outline we don't have to talk about it because if we don't want to but i literally made it note when i was taking notes i was like i hate this robot i hate him so much i forgot how much i hated him He's but. really grating, and mm-hmm. particularly it was bad when watching some of the older advertisements for the movie, mm-hmm. it, they seem to really focus a lot on Ben to get the kids in. Yep. Uh, when the film isn't like the most kid-oriented, so really doubling down on Ben when he's really minimal in the film. Yeah, and like I get why he's in the movie. He serves a narrative purpose that also is in the original novel, but I kind of compared it to Olaf in Frozen, which oh, so much of the marketing focused on Olaf. And like you would have guessed that he was the main character. I think I think Olaf is a more successful character because he has that kind of heart and sincerity that Ben just doesn't really have. And yeah, Ben is not a major part of this movie. I mean, he is a major part in terms of narrative purpose, but he's only in like the last third of the movie. And which yeah. is also comparable to the original character in yes. Treasure Island. He's really not there very long. He is there no. to be like their Sherpa on the island, and that's about it. I like remember the advertisement seeing Ben and this character. I remember seeing him in all the trailers and everything, but um, I, I hate the character so much. So let's let's move on from this so I don't like go on a rant so all in all this film cost 140 million dollars to make which does make it the most expensive traditionally animated film ever made Um, I believe the second highest animated film overall because the most expensive is Tangled but 
obviously a pricey film, and it released on November 27th, 2002, notably as the first film to have a simultaneous release in both IMAX and traditional theaters. And as I said, I would have loved to see this movie on IMAX, and I'll never get the chance. It's probably not even in 4K on Disney+. Plus. It might be in HD. I don't know if they released it on Blu-ray ever. Probably it's did. On, it's on Blu-ray. And okay. that one was released for the 10th anniversary. So mm-hmm. I think you can watch it in 1080p. But that's about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the best we're going to get. Because yeah. they're not. Why would, they, why would they put the money into a 4K conversion for this movie? For all five people to buy it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was a major, and I mean major, box office failure, and it made only $12 million in its fourth weekend, placing fourth behind films like Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Die Another Day, James Bond, and another Disney film, The Santa Claus 2. Overall, it only made $38.1 million domestically and $71.4 million internationally, for a grand total of $109.5 million, which does make it one of Disney's biggest failures at the box office. I actually think in terms of Disney's feature animation, it is its biggest failure because obviously the Black Cauldron flopped hard, but I think it's because it was less expensive. It's not as big, but both failures. I mean, I, I don't know if films like John Carter or Mars Needs Mom like are bigger failures, but It's a pretty bad failure for Disney, which is unfortunate because, again, this film is such a labor of love and they had so much passion behind it. But there was a recent uh, video I watched. It's not a very recent video. I think it came out five years ago. It's uh, from the YouTuber Breadsword, who did a 35 minute long breakdown of this film. I was perfectly uh, encapsulated my love for this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, he specifically noted that the film itself was released in a very packed holiday season, Mm -hmm. uh, especially around Disney's own The Santa Claus 2, which I also remember watching in theaters, (laughs) and Chamber of Secrets at the time, when the film itself is oriented to be like a summer swashbuckling story. Mm -hmm. But going through here uh, and looking at the summer of 2002, in cinema, there was another Disney film that yes. came out early that summer, which is the other film I've referenced frequently throughout this show. That is Lilo and Stitch. Mm-hmm. That was the peak animation from Disney that summer. Yeah, And Lilo and Stitch honestly just capsulates summer a lot more yeah. than Treasure Planet, even though they are both essentially like summer films. Yeah. But if you have a movie set in Hawaii, like it's that's your summer movie. You know, I, I watched that video. I really love that video. Um, I do not personally agree with his like tinfoil theory that Disney sabotaged the film because I mean, because just yeah, like you said, there were there was already another film that released in the summer by Disney Animation. So they're not gonna they don't want to cannibalize that one. And Disney traditionally releases its animated films in the fall. Like even up to now, we get films in the fall because we want families to see this movie so you either release it in the summer or the holidays and so I don't think they like set it there to die um I just think probably an unfortunate mix of circumstances um this film did come at a time when interest in 2D animation was on the decline very much we're only god um seven years from the release of Toy Story which had a foundational major impact on the film industry overall and obviously animation and 
2D films overall just were not doing great at the box office. I mean, outside of Lilo and Stitch, none of the films really were hits, even from like from DreamWorks, like Spirit, I actually don't know how Spirit did, but I know The Prince of Egypt wasn't great at the box office. And in general, as we see from like other movies, sci-fi can be a tough sell for audiences, even though like, like we said, this isn't really a sci-fi film it just is in like ter- in like surface level only but traditionally historically sci-fi films don't really do great at the box office i mean films like uh blade runner and its sequel both were failures to the box office even tron which we talked about a few weeks ago it, that didn't do great at the box office i just think the sci-fi is just never a big sell for the mainstream audience overall and honestly as much as Clements and Musker wanted to see Treasure Island in space, I just don't think there was much audience appetite for the movie, that movie specifically. And maybe it's because Treasure Island as a whole kind of uh, the public consciousness, but I just don't know if this was a concept that would have been a big hit in any regard. And even going through some more box office numbers and releases from that time, I was going to posit that perhaps the movie could have been delayed until spring or summer of the following year. But just like we have now, early 2003 was packed with Disney releases. Yeah. So if we go to that spring summer of 2003, we have on April 18th, Holes from Walt Disney Pictures and Walden Media. If we go just a couple of weeks later, to May 2nd, we have the Lizzie McGuire movie releasing mm-hmm. in theaters then. Just a little ways after that, on May 30th, we have Finding Nemo. Mm-hmm. Then going through the rest of the summer, it's all, it could have done decent if they released it like in July, but mm-hmm. then that would have put them in direct competition with another 2D swashbuckling adventure, Sinbad, yeah. Legend of the Seven Seas, a movie I also watched in theaters. <laughs> Uh, and then the follow-up project to, or from some of the team behind uh, Treasure Planet, which on July 9th, we have the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not as extreme as Disney of today, where like you very much like you get your two Marvel films a year, you get your one animated film, you get your one Pixar film a year. But with a rigid schedule like Disney Animation Studios was doing even back then like they get one maybe two like like in 2002 but you get that one film a year and you kind of can't put it anywhere else I mean you can maybe put it that summer like you said but there's a lot of competition there but you can't put it in the fall because then you have Brother Bear coming out that fall Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like they always release a movie in the fall like it was gonna happen I think it's just an unfortunate mix of circumstances. And I think honestly, another thing that might have been against it is that it's not what you think a Disney movie is going to be for, for both better and worse. Like as much as I love the risks this film takes, I mention it every time, basically. A Disney movie has a specific connotation behind it and and audiences have an expectation about what a Disney movie is. And while this does have so many of the trappings of Disney movies, it also has so much that isn't there. Like there's no songs, there, there's one song, but it's not a musical. It's There's no romance. There's like none of that. It's a sci-fi adventure. So maybe like they saw that Disney was making this thing that's not really their bread and butter. And maybe they were like kind of turned off by it in a way. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, some of the main trappings of 
having those musical elements. The musical elements are really what sold Disney animation in a lot mm-hmm. of these films. Yeah. And they started to play around with the moving away from the musical elements in like Hercules, even yeah. though you still have a lot of like characters singing the moments. But yes. that was definitely like the musical for boys because there's action mm-hmm. and lots of just action sequences. And it's about a male character, but it's definitely still a musical. And then they kind of strayed away from that with Tarzan a bit more, mm-hmm. where there's less musical numbers and the main characters aren't really the ones singing. The main two characters, Tarzan and Jane, are mm-hmm aren't the ones performing any of the songs yeah uh, you have like the parental figures and the comic relief doing the singing and performing which is it's another kind of like stage play where you yeah. have like the people telling the story and the side characters that are adding to it and then you also have like the ethereal phil collins uh whose voice just appears uh instead of phil collins actually playing any character but Treasure Planet and Atlantis also sort of skewed away from that, where Atlantis also definitely was not a musical. I mean, that's kind of Disney animation in the 2000s is them very kind of like veering away from that. And Treasure Planet just very harshly skews against that rather than the more gradual playing of the tropes in mm-hmm. more recent Disney movies, where like the Princess and the Frog plays with that a bit, uh, Moana mm-hmm. and... Uh, even Pixar's princess movie Brave. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's all happen- over Frozen. Yeah, it's all over Frozen where like the princesses can save themselves. And it's a more gentle uh, pushing of the tropes that Disney themselves established in their older catalog of films. Whereas at the point when Treasure Planet came out, I don't think people were as comfortable in the challenging of those roles as they are today. And like the whole thing is like, yes, yeah, those movies that you mentioned do kind of go against the grain, but they're also part, they very much are a part of the company's DNA. And I do think parts of Treasure Planet do fit in the Disney DNA. I mean, you have a character who is going on a journey of self-discovery. You have like the core heartwarming relationship, even though there's no romance, there is a relationship at the center of the movie and all that but yeah it does so many things and even Disney in the late 90s was kind of going against that grain even though they were musicals you saw movies like Pocahontas and Hunchback that kind of were starting to veer from the path and even those movies were increasingly less popular with audiences and maybe it was just Disney fatigue in general that like their Disney release was just like releasing a movie constantly maybe audience were getting kind of sick of it i don't know because obviously yeah having a disney animated release every six months can be pretty grating i mean it's weird because we don't really seem to be in that right now i mean some you get the odd occasional flop from disney like i think the most recent one was probably dumbo the live action dumbo but besides that disney movies are all on the whole pretty successful and they're releasing the second maleficent film perform well it didn't i I forgot that movie existed (laughs) Because that movie, I think, came out like six years after the original one, because that's what we wanted. Yeah, same with the second Alice in Wonderland film. Mm -hmm. Which I'm, again, I mean, this is off topic, but like, I mean, that's the movie that kicked off this live action remake trend we're currently in. And because that movie was somehow like one of the first movies to make a billion dollars at the box office, like now it's like basically expected. But back then it was like uh, this anomaly. And I'm like, 
why what did this movie do to just ignite the audience so much johnny depp oh yeah i forgot i mean he was like he was the marketing of that movie it, mm-hmm. the poster is literally just the mad hatter there's a million reasons i think it's kind of similar to while it wasn't as much of a box office failure um kind of like princess and the frog that it was considered a disappointment at the box office just because it didn't make a lot of money it was a success but like not a huge one and i think it's kind of like that where there's like a million things that could be at play here but ultimately i do think it's just the fact that for some weird reason audiences don't want to see new 2d films in theaters even though the older Disney 2D films are still very popular, but for some reason... Or at reason, least if they want to see a 2D film, it's not going to be a Disney one. Because well, now in the middle of this pandemic, we have Demon Slayer, Mutant true. Train being the number one film in the box office globally. Yes. And you have other films like Mortal Kombat or King Kong versus Godzilla, or Kong versus Godzilla, excuse me. Whereas that film just really happened to resonate with viewers and finally managed to get people comfortable with returning the movie theaters no and I, I that is a good point but like I but that I, I would also argue that it's kind of a different case because it is it is while they're both animated films I'm not like super hip with Demon Slayer but it's not really a family movie in the way that oh Kendrick no did. absolutely yeah, not. it's not so like and like it obviously comes with a pre-existing fan base and an anime itself is kind of like it's not a niche, but like it is a thing that kind of just draws a certain group of people naturally. And while it is for some reason, family movies, like people don't want to see 2D family movies, like no major animation studio makes 2D films, at least not for theaters. You think of Sony Pictures, um, Illumination, DreamWorks, none of them are making 2D animated films anymore. And even and even films that do have like a 2D style, like Into the Spider-Verse, that is still a 3D film just with a 2D like sheen on it. Mm-hmm. I am sad by that because I think 2D animation, as I kind of get into, like, I think this really showcases the strength and how dynamic 2D animation really can be. But alas, it's not all bad news for Treasure Plant, though. It did get positive reviews, mostly praising its animation, but like also its story, voice cast, all that. And it did get a nomination at the Oscars for Best Animated Film. I think this was only the second year because the first winner was Shrek. So this came out a year after Shrek. It also was nominated alongside its fellow 2002 Disney animated movie, Lilo and Stitch, which, as we mentioned, was a far greater success. Uh, but both lost, and I mean, speaking of anime, they both lost to Spirited Away, which is a wonderful film, and I think still the only international film to win the award. You know, it, it had very steep competition. Um, Disney did put a lot behind this film, though. They were planning a whole franchise, as we'll touch on at the end of this podcast, but unfortunately, it was not meant to be, but they did have the ambitions, that sadly were never realized, unfortunately. Now 
now that we've gone through the labored, tortured history of Treasured Planet, let's talk about the film itself. And I think, I mean, I feel like the thing that everyone goes to is just how beautiful this film is, both in terms of- It's so pretty. Yeah, it's like its color scheme, its aesthetic, and just its pure animation. And I really do feel like this kind of revolutionized 2D animation, which is kind of a tragedy that it, in a way, is like one of the last beacons of it. I mean, obviously, you still get some 2D films, but in terms of major theatrical releases, this is really one of the last pillars of it. The camera work is also incredible, and you Mm -hmm. still don't see things like this in 2D animation. No. just the how dynamic the camera can be at times is just incredible where one of my favorite shots in the film is after Jim or first opens the map and they're talking about going on this adventure and how the camera sits on Jim sitting in front of the window with the moon in the background and they talk about going to the spaceport and Mm -hmm. then the camera shoots through the window yes up towards the moon I love and, it. and you find out that the moon is the spaceport still one of the coolest shots I have ever seen definitely I love that scene like I, I remembered it from the movie but then like watching I'm like it still gets me and it's not it doesn't really have to do necessarily with like the camera work but like I want to I also love like the scene the transition from the intro to current day gym where it's like just you see him it's like it's just a quick flash to him on the sailor and I think this film really does play with um, camera angles and editing in a way that a lot of other animated films just don't and maybe because animated films don't really have the scope of this movie like a lot of animated films have that like epic feel to it but none of them really have the scope of this film like this really does feel like a major epic adventure other films also don't have uh, directors that have 20 years to ruminate mm-hmm. on their ideas I mean obviously this movie I feel like if it came out in the 80s or 90s like it would not be nearly as beautiful maybe it would have been more of a hit because uh, who knows but like the fact that they had all this time to really figure out what they wanted this film to be figure out a vision for this film and it allowed them to experiment with new technology and I know that's the reason it became so expensive and why it was such a disappointment but I I am disappointed that we aren't getting another Disney movie like this that just is so dynamic in just how it functions and they were maybe like just a year or two ahead of where the technology would have been able to make this the entire film process just significantly cheaper I mean, that's how anything goes. Like the first time you do something is always going to be the riskiest and the most expensive because it's unproven and you're just a bit, you're really just making it up on the fly. But like, once you have it established, like that's it. And like, and I get why they've never used this because they don't make 2D animated films anymore. And the the ones that they are, are much more smaller in scope. They've gotten like the princess and the frog and Winnie the Pooh are the most recent ones, but those ones like deep canvas would not work. It just doesn't fit in. So and it's if a they shame. are using CG elements, they blend in a lot better into the film more naturally. Mm-hmm. One shot in, or there's one scene in Princess and the Frog where Tiana is on a like a trolley train. Yes. And that trolley train is entirely CG, but you wouldn't know just by looking at it. I mean, I I, I do get on one hand because I was like, if you're looking at it from a studio's perspective, why would you make a film that a 2D film that has heavy 
3D elements when you could just make a 3D film. Like I, I do get it from a business perspective, but it is a shame because I think this shows just how dynamic like 2D animation as a medium can be and how versatile it is. Because I think there is this conception of it that it's, it's simpler and it's not as complex. And I mean, the film like this shows that's not the case at all. And another thing I really wanted to talk about was this is a surprisingly faithful adaptation of the book as we've talked about. But one of the biggest changes I feel like is the relationship between John Silver and Jim that like they really, really hone in on that. And I think it works. And I just think John Silver's character in general is very unique for Disney because, I mean, he is ultimately the antagonist, but he's also a complex antagonist. I know Disney kind of has started to go into that with like their secret antagonist. And I think most, re and with most recently, Orion the Last Dragon has that like kind of antagonist that redeems herself at the end. Having more relatable antagonists in general. Yeah, I think, I mean, I talked about this in um, the Tangled episode, but Disney doesn't really do villains anymore. Like a villain that would be a Disney villain. Disney does not do that anymore. And I think it kind of just speaks to a broader film trend in general, because we talked about like, even Star Wars does not have, really doesn't have a villain. I mean, you got Palpatine and Snoke, but its main villain, it gets redeemed at the end. And that's, I mean, that's kind of what they do with John Silver. Like he is still a villain because ultimately he's out for himself, but he does get that redemption at the end when he saves Jim and like he lets Morph go and just, and even when, he, when Jim sees his like cloud, I guess is the best way I'll put it, of his face. Like they end on a good note, which is like kind of surprising. They end on a good note, but on this most recent watch of the movie, it didn't quite pay off for me. I'm not sure what it was because this is easily like somewhere in the triple digits of me watching this movie. <laughs> but watching it for the first time in a long time, the the relationship and the payoff towards the end uh, when they're talking about like missing each other and morph and before he goes off on his own, the emotional hit just wasn't there this time around mm -hmm. where in like newer Disney films, like the relationships, they really pay it off. And I'm not sure if it's just from the more subdued nature from it still being like the early 2000s and maybe Disney being afraid or of showing two men like actually show emotion mm -hmm. and love for each other, even though that is what would be the grand payoff of the fatherly son relationship. So they could have maybe done more in that final moment to really pay it off. But yeah, it just didn't hit quite the same as it has in the past or with other films later down the line. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because it's a movie I haven't seen pretty recently, but like it did, it was effective for me. Like I have not seen this in, I could not tell you the amount of the number of years I've have, I've seen it. Um, but it really, I really was struck by it and like watching it grow and develop. And I mean, nowadays, I mean, father-son focus stories is kind of a cliche, but I feel like back then it, really wasn't and it's such a unique take on it because usually when it's like a father-son relationship or father-child relationship the child is like young at early teenager at the most like you and usually it's a younger kid and so I think the fact that like Jim is 
more or less an adult, I think that does put a unique spin on it because he does have the maturity. I mean, maybe not like he doesn't really express it, but he has the maturity and awareness of the world that kind of makes him cautious about this relationship at first. Mm-hmm. It is kind of funny because like we don't like we don't really get this type of relationship in a Disney movie. I mean, it's usually I mean, like I said, it's usually a romantic relationship, but we don't really get parental focused relationships in Disney movies. I think the closest I can think of is Mufasa and Simba. I mean, and then that's only for half of the movie. And then Brave is like, that's what that movie is all about. Because I mean, every Disney movie has, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, there is a central relationship at the center of it. And for this one, it's I feel like it's a unique take on that central Disney relationship. And more often than not, the parents are dead anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I mean, yeah, we, like we said, we don't know if Jim's father is dead. He might be, probably is. I mean, he basically is dead for the purposes of the story. Most of these like parental relationships are more explored in like Pixar films rather mm-hmm. than the mainline Disney animations. Coco deals with like parental relationship. Finding in- Nemo. Yeah, Finding Nemo, Inside Out. Incredibles. Uh, Incredibles. Almost all of them have like that family yeah. relationship. And them. even, yeah, like Monsters Inc. too, with like Boo and Sully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is like a more, because I mean, yeah, Pixar doesn't really do romance. They do sometimes, but they don't do romance. Like that's like Disney feature animations, bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And so it is like, and they, again, that might have been why some audiences weren't really tuning in for it, but I think it's. I again, I think it shows that this kind of goes against the grain of the Disney movie while still being in line with those Disney traditions. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, and I, I just wanted to point, like, just like make a point about how different Jim is from your usual Disney protagonist. And like, I like how they, I really do like how they show his development in the movie. And like, it's a very subtle ways too. But we mentioned we do get our kind of quote unquote bad boy protagonist. I mean, Aladdin is kind of but even he has a heart of gold but Jim is just like a delinquent which is someone we don't really get from a Disney movie even though we he does have like the classic Disney trappings of um, lacking in self-confidence and trying to find a sense of identity but he is very much a loner character a character who just shuns the world and like usually our Disney protagonists want to go out into the world and he just wants to like cut himself off from everyone and I think it's unique and I do like how they kind of show I like that video you mentioned earlier really brought up a good point like how his visual design and his his clothing choices do reflect his overall development because it kind of goes from him wearing his dark leather jacket to shedding that jacket to wearing a more brighter but still kind of neutral green color to ultimately at the end he's wearing his bright white academy uniform and it's something we don't really get from Disney movies because they usually stick to one outfit the whole movie or at least they're in one outfit at the beginning then they change for the rest of the movie yeah and also just how very clearly his clothing represents his character arc whereas in other movies it's more of like a a sudden change where Mm -hmm. you get you have like your Cinderella glow up moment where they suddenly are like all princessed up Whereas this is a much more gradual, like, black muted colors, and then progressing to his warmer and ultimately just 
white and red outfit. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, probably the closest comparison I would make is you've seen, have you seen Frozen 2? Uh, I have not actually. Okay. Um, do you mind if I talk about it or do you care about spoilers or? I do not care. Okay. So I really, I think kind of similar to what they do with Elsa in Frozen 2, because she starts off in like her braid and like her very like adventure outfit. But as she goes on her adventure, she starts, well, first she lets her hair down into a ponytail. And then by the time, by the end of the film, it's just completely down as if she's finally free. And there is some outfit changes involved too, but it kind of symbolizes her like finally letting go of like all of her self-doubt and inhibitions and just being herself. And I think she's letting go. Yes, she is letting go. As always, she's letting go of her, of her past and her trauma. And she and like, no longer has to conceal and not feel. She kind of, yeah, she kind of does, falls back into her old ways as, mm. as is common in a sequel. Mm-hmm. Even the look of him, like that little like shadow under his eyes that he like basically is a permanent fixture of his face for the first half of the movie gradually mm-hmm. goes away as he learns to open up to Jim and, you know, finds a sense of like probably for the first time in a while, like actual happiness. Yeah. It really feels magical, the whole film. Mm-hmm. It feels magical without once really mentioning magic mm-hmm. because everything is all sci-fi. Yeah. And how it's a lot more grounded in the in-universe science and how everything works. They never talk about how that stuff works. Yes. But everything still feels magical. So the feel of that Disney magic that comes from the more traditional Disney films is still there, even though the film completely eschews any idea of magic in general. Again, that goes back to it being a deliberate choice. Like they made a choice to not have this be set in the future of our world. This is its own world and own universe. And because of that, that automatically brings its own set of logic and rules and science that the film doesn't deal with. But because this is just in its own different separate corner, it's allowed to basically be whatever it wants to be. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it really does have this sense of like, it really feels more of like, I don't even know if it feels like a space fantasy. I guess it does because it is in space, but it feels more of a fantasy than like a sci-fi film. And again, I, and I think it goes back to them very faithfully adapting this book and just throwing it in space, like not really changing anything because yeah this you would think like setting treasure plan in space you would think you would want to change everything about it to fit with the sci-fi aesthetic but the only thing that really changes is that there's aliens and instead of islands it's planets and the water is space and there's rockets and that's it even the one of the scenes where instead of a storm it is a supernova (laughs) the equivalent of like a solar storm personally i think it would have been a bit more realistic for as realistic as you want to be as ships in space is to have like uh like asteroids like they have to navigate an asteroid field or something just because like nothing's gonna survive a supernova much less a black hole but i i get the the connections they were trying to make to like a whirlpool or Mm -hmm. like a just like a sudden hurricane or something. Yeah. And I, I do think just like, I mean, again, this film doesn't really bother itself with dealing with logic, but I do think you kind of run into an issue with like, they're in an open air ship. Asteroids will probably kill all of them. And so. then like the, like the solar radiation from yeah. the solar flares, like 
would the supernova radiation just like roast them or does like the artificial gravity thing does that also help them like does it create like a localized atmosphere to protect them from the radiation stuff like that that the film just does not have to go into no and i and again i talk i i don't want to keep rehashing it but i i i love that the film does that and again because it's set in its own universe it doesn't have to explain that like Mm -mm. you don't just work yeah because if this were very clearly set in like our world just in the future then those questions would pop up but because this is very clearly in a specific time and place that's outside of our time and place you don't need to answer those questions you don't even need to ask those questions Mm. There is a world where we get a much more traditional sci-fi version of Treasure Island or Treasure Planet, and I think that could you could really create some interesting possibilities there, like if this were more of like a hard sci-fi story, but the fact that it's not just makes it stand out that much more. One thing I would like to see, and this is on a completely different subject, mm-hmm. is because the two directors are still at Disney... Yes. And with all the technological advancements within the last 20 years, maybe remaking Treasure Planet wouldn't be too bad of an idea, even though it really didn't make much the first time around. Because Disney really likes remaking their projects. Yeah. And with the live action remakes or as live action, as you would call Lion King. Mm -hmm. uh, And with all these new technologies, it would make making or physically making just a new 3d animated treasure planet you could do literally the same story with maybe a couple updates to maybe leave the door a bit more closed for a sequel Uh that will likely never come but just redo the movie to allow for these same animations and have a new audience be able to let their spirit soar through the ethereal. Oh, had to include that somewhere. I don't know if I've ever seen. I, I'm. It wouldn't surprise me if Disney were considering a live action remake of Treasure Planet. I don't know if that actually is a story coming out. Let Imagine me check like right now. Timothy Chalamet as Jim Hawkins. But then you know you just bring comparisons to Dune. I know Dune is literally nothing like Treasure Planet, but you know people are gonna. It's like the sci-fi. Oh. There are some similarities there. It's, That's a, it's true. an adventure. That's true. They're both Not as, somewhat space fantasy. One is significantly longer than the other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, okay. So nothing on the Wikipedia page. So I don't know if it was from a, like a reputable source or anything, but there were like rumblings of an Atlantis remake. So I'm like, if I don't know if that's true or not. Because again, I don't know where that story originated from. But if we're getting an Atlantis remake, like, why wouldn't we get a Treasure Planet remake? Exactly. I mean, they're going to run out of their hit films. We're getting a live action Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I don't think anyone wanted that movie. I mean, yeah, I, I, I enjoy Hunchback, but I was like, it's definitely not a movie that I needed. Because I mean, although um, to go on a bit of a tangent, I really do think these remakes can be interesting in the way that like, you can take a film that has a good a good premise and a good idea and maybe just didn't fully come together in its execution and kind of be able to correct for lack of a better term those mistakes again we talked about here like we think i think treasure plan is successful but maybe like take the time to like actually figure out 
what went wrong and kind of maybe course correct it. But I mean, instead we're getting the obvious, like let's remake our most popular films and do yeah, it let's exactly. Remake, yeah, let's remake our most popular films with almost no changes mm -hmm. and then just watch the money flow in. I know. And it's like the ones that do make changes. Like, and like, I'm, I was very excited for the Mulan remake because they're making changes. Like they're actually doing something different and then it ended up being a bad movie. So mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, maybe, maybe the best answer is like, don't remake all of your films, but we're clearly past that. So we are long past that. I know we're getting the, I mean, another 2002 movie, the Lilo and Stitch live action remake is on its way. I forgot that was coming. And I think it's, I don't know if they've actually like how much movement is being made but it's a thing and we're getting the live action I mean it's not really a remake but we're getting the live action Cruella movie in just a couple weeks maybe I actually think next week it comes out oh yeah that should be here in a couple weeks although that's next week as of this recording by the time the episode out it is already available on Disney plus for 30 bucks and in theaters Ooh, I don't know why I'm plugging it but have they announced the cast for the live action uh, Lilo and Stitch film? No, I think they literally just announced a director like a few months ago. Oh, okay. So it's because very early. What would be an interesting uh, take for the adaptation is if they had the animated princess Moana played by Auli'i Cravajo, mm -hmm. if they had her instead play Nani in the film, just because she fits the age. Oh yeah, she has the character. She's about that age. Yeah, uh, and then she also is a uh, Pacific Islander in heritage. Yes, so she would fit the role, and then just find someone to be her little sister. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, clearly, yeah, they're going to have Pacific Islander a cast because, I mean, obviously, and okay, you have to. <laughs> yeah, on November twenty twenty, it was reported that John M. Chu is in enter talks to direct the film. Ooh, I know that's a interesting pick and Crazy it was rich aliens uh boo it was originally being made like just for disney plus but now apparently they're unsure if it's going to be in theaters or disney plus because i mean by the time this movie comes out theaters will be well i don't want to say they'll be back to normal but they will be open in theory maybe we'd finally be able to see the the ending plane sequence that was originally going to be in the movie oh yeah that was unfortunate timing yeah, and that that's a whole other mess for another episode, I'm sure. Yeah, there are actually a few deleted scenes from William Stitch that like add some interesting context to it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is neither here nor there. Oh, this is fantastic! The carbon-based life form come to rescue me at last! I just want to hug you and squeeze you and hold you close to me. All right, okay. Just let go of me? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's just... I've, I've been marooned for uh, so long. I mean, <laughs> solitude's fun. Don't get me wrong, for heaven's sakes, after a hundred years, you got a little nuts! <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, uh, my... I am, um, my name is, uh... <laughs> Okay, so now that we've basically exhausted all of our thoughts on this movie, Time to talk about its impact. And this one is kind of interesting, especially in relation to the prior films I've talked about, and that like its impact basically is non-existent um, because it was such a box office flop. But 
there is potential impact there. And that's what we're going to be focusing on because as I teased a little bit earlier, Disney was planning a whole dang franchise around this thing. And they were really confident in it, like as we'll get into. Um, I mean, like any Disney movie, you could see some of the characters at their parks, but obviously not so much anymore. I remember like, I think a few months ago, actually it's a year ago because when the parks were open, people just saw Jim at, Magic Kingdom, just walking around their Tomorrowland, you know, sometimes they just want to bring him out as a treat. And while it did not get an official sequel, though there was attempts, it did get a real-time strategy video game called Treasure Planet Battle at the Procyon, Procyon, I don't know, I've never played it. Um, I mean, it seems like a natural fit for a RTS game because it ships in space. Space RTS games are also really fun. Is Spacecraft RTS? Starcraft? Like, yeah. Yes, yeah, Starcraft is an RTS. Okay, cuz I don't... Uh, the kind of RTS game I think that would be better fit for like the Treasure Planet IP would be something along the lines of Homeworld. Okay. Uh, which is a it's also an RTS where you like control ships and whatnot, but it's in full 3D. So mm-hmm. you control your ships not just over uh like land, but you can move them fully through 3D environments, command their movements, and you like orchestrate all these different dogfights in space. So it's a lot more dynamic, and that would probably be better fitting for some of the limited ship combat that we see in Treasure Planet. Where there's only ever one sequence of actual like ship-on-ship combat. Yeah, like... This really isn't a story that's made for that. Um, I'm looking at actually going through a clips of the videos now because I should have done this before. And I mean, I'm getting hit with like the 2000s 3D graphics, like a truck. Ooh. Ooh. I do not traffic in the world of strategy games. That is probably my least favorite genre of video game. Um, so I just like immediately anything strategy related, I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm good. Um, but I think the most notable interesting thing about this game is that it is a sequel to the movie. It takes place five years after the movie's story and it came out before the movie came out. So they were just spoiling the movie before it is even out. Oh, you know, this actually kind of looks like Homeworld gameplay. <laughs> well, well, I wonder who developed it. Maybe it's the same developer. It it very well could be. Let me, let me do my... I know this is riveting for the audio listeners. Treasure Planet Battle at Procyon. Um, oh, it was um, developed by, well, now defunct, Rockstar Vancouver, but formerly Barking Dog Studios. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm assuming, yeah, it was before they were acquired by Take-Two. Wait, yeah, wait. Yeah, developers of Bully... Rockstar Vancouver made this game. Oh, wow. Oh, no. Well, okay. Yeah, it merged with Rockstar Toronto. So, like, it's defunct, kind of. Oh, yeah. And they were the original developers of Homeworld. (laughs) Are they? I didn't see it. Wait, I didn't even see that. The company started out. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. The Beta 5 version of Counter-Strike. Its following projects include Homeworld Cataclysm, a standalone expansion for Homeworld Global Operations. So, you know, they Disney saw them and I'm like, okay, these guys will basically have them make the same name, the same game, just more steampunky. (laughs) We made some discoveries on this podcast. Yeah. 
so yeah like for some reason they decide to make and I get you probably can't you can't do like a just an adaptation of the movie because there are no there's no ship combat but I think making a sequel to the game I don't maybe it doesn't spoil anything I don't know but I, I got to imagine characters like John Silver are in this game because he's mm-hmm. one of the main characters but maybe I will do research in the interim between this recording and the episode's release but so this is basically the Treasure Planet sequel that we'll never get but there is a world where we could have gotten an actual sequel because and what was in that actual sequel oh there was a lot in the sequel um it was in development good at least like half a year of development maybe probably even more the whole cast was set to return i don't know if this was going to be done by the feature animation team or like the team that makes like this the sequels like the direct-to-video sequels although in the 2000s they released some of them in theaters like the peter pan one i don't i couldn't find who was actually going to make it but the whole cast was like basically expected to return but we also were supposed to get willem dafoe as iron beard the main antagonist and he signed on for this role like all the plot details are out there it's like it was Basically, we set the focus on Jim, who was at the Naval Academy, and he would have actually gotten a love interest in this story. Uh, her name's Kate. I think she started off as his rival, so enemies to lovers trope. You love to see it. Mm-hmm. And the, a lot of work had gone into this movie. Um, storyboard artist June Falkenstein, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, said she was on the projects for about eight to nine months before it was canceled. And she even said that they were getting ready to record with Willem Dafoe when they got the call that it was canceled. I heard it was like literally minutes yeah. before Dafoe was supposed to come in the studio where they got the call that the project was canceled. Yeah, and like, I know that's Hollywood. It's more rare to actually get a project that gets released than it is to get one that gets canceled. But like, when you put that much into it, like that's gotta suck. Like it just like it. I like I do feel for people because like they obviously put a lot into the sequel, but I mean it's just the business. Unfortunately, why would you mm-hmm. make a sequel to a film that that like just made so much less money than it cost? And because of the failure, Disney hasn't done much with the film since. And uh, I kind of liken it to the film that came out I think a year prior, Atlantis: The Lost Empire, because they are both really interesting experiments from Disney where they ventured into sci-fi territory. Atlantis is much more sci-fi heavy than Treasure Planet is, but also has those mystical elements to it. But they're both the studio's first attempts at sci-fi. And Lilo and Stitch kind of has that sci-fi flavor too, but that's like, it's not really the focus of the film. And I think it just shows that Disney in the 2000s was really a time of experimentation. And I mean, they they all their films for the most part weren't great or at least they weren't successes but I feel like it's a really interesting period of experimentation for a studio that's more or less known to play it pretty safe and we have not seen a sci-fi movie from the studio since I mean you could argue maybe films like Wreck-It Ralph and Big Hero 6 fall into the sci-fi but like there is some science fiction there but it is not like high science fiction or even space fantasy like something like star wars outside of star wars which really is kind of its own unique take on sci-fi to begin with disney doesn't really have a sci-fi property i mean i guess the closest thing that it actually uses outside nowadays is tron and even then is kind of like and tron also didn't perform 
quite as well as they could have. No, but for some reason, Disney really wants to keep making that franchise happen. And then John Carter. Yeah. Which was also a big media blunder at the time. But now, like we said, we are approaching 20 years since this movie came out and there's a lot of nostalgia for this film so we'll see if disney capitalizes it on any meaningful way i mean i'm sure we'll get like merch um some shirts at the parks some other types of like merch and a dvd release if they're still doing dvd releases by this point or a whole 4k blu-ray remaster i mean honestly maybe like I mean, I, I honestly will see if Disney does anything with this movie. It's unfortunately, it's it's an unfortunate dark spot in the studio's history because it is such, it's such a unique film that has a lot of love and passion behind it, but it just ultimately, for some reason, audiences didn't connect with it. Mm-hmm. And on that happy note, um, that's about it for this week. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Frankie. Is there anything you would like to plug before we say our goodbyes? Uh, I would like to plug myself into a power outlet so that I can recharge and get on with the rest of my weekend. Uh, But also, I would like to mention that if you want to hear more from me, I run the show 8-Bits on across every podcast platform. It is a video game news show that focuses on delivering only eight pieces of news from the week in as quick but still informative way as possible. I try to keep each episode to about 10 minutes long just because no one needs another hour-long gaming podcast in their life. So if you just want to be informed and that's really it, feel free and catch my show 8-Bits across any podcast platform. And if you want to follow me, say, on Twitter, where I post updates about the show, as well as just post my random musings. You can follow me at Frankie Godoy. That is at F-R-A-N-K-I-E-G-O-D-O-Y. Um, yeah, as for me, you can follow me at Aiden Simons. You can follow this show on all social medias at Disney Vaultcast. Um, give us five stars on iTunes, please, because it would make me happy. And you should make try to make me happy because I feel like I deserve it. And I will see you guys next week where we go back into the Disney vault. Bye. Bye. This place I never thought would feel like home.